Hello, welcome to Medicine Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello, and I'm here in um, the University of Oxford at the Geography Building with um, Professor Danny Dawling. Danny is a social geographer and the Halford Mackinder Professor in Geography at Oxford. He spent over 20 years studying really the wealth gap, housing, health, employment, education, uh, poverty and wealth. His collaboration on the World Mapper website shows who has the most and the least in the world. He's published and broadcast really extensively around inequality, politics, and more recently around Brexit. Danny, welcome to Medicine Unboxed Voices. I I grew up in um, East London and spent most of my youth, in fact, on the Central Line. Mm-hmm. And I was struck out of all the tomes you've written by the very short book on the central line 32 stops Mm. for two things one actually the stories you told deeply affecting stories Mm. great fiction prose by the way (laughs) (laughs) but also what comes across in that book is the sheer proximity between regions that are utterly different and with quite sharp Mm. boundaries of inequality even in a small space yes um, there was a lovely book to write. It's the only fiction book I've ever done. Uh, I, I wanted, I, I got it as the last line. Uh, Penguin were doing a series on, on train lines in London and underground lines. And um, I was clearly the last person they asked because I was told this is your line. Uh, but the central line is, is a great one for a geographer. I had intended to walk the line. And then I had to go just from Liverpool Street to Bethnal Green. And it's remarkable how long it takes to walk over ground. If you stop and look what's happening around you, it, it would take months uh, to walk to walk the line and to, and to do it properly. So instead, I explored it statistically because I have a huge amount of data. So I worked out where are the census areas around each train station on the line? Uh, what are the average results, say, at school for children who live around each stop? The life expectancy, many, many... Uh, things and I also googled uh, quite a lot about the areas uh, my favorite is a conservative association at some point along the line I forget where where they boasted that they had people from six nationalities and we have no idea that they were in an area with 300 nationalities um, and I constructed stories uh, along the line that began with a baby being born at the first stop and then a three-year-old a six-year-old a nine-year-old Uh, So I could end up with people at the end of life to try and get a sense that where where you live and the effect it has on you is is different at different ages, but is quite determining. We like to think that we are who we are because of who we are and what what we do. But if you'd taken any of us and at the point of birth moved us into a different setting, a different family in a different place, we'd be utterly different people. Uh, And we're very resistant to that. We go, no, I'm me. You know, all I'm the product of my genes, so I'm quite like my parents. But it isn't hard, particularly given how people in London are mixed about. 
I mean, this is this is a huge flux of, of human beings um, to see that actually you're looking at, at lives which are quite predict- predictable. And you say in the book, place matters. Yes. So almost accidents of luck when you say place matters? Uh, well, the accidents of luck over your what happened to your parents, which determines the place you will end up in. Yeah. Uh, there are streets in London where the majority of children go to Oxford and Cambridge University from those streets. Mm. So it actually was, it would be an achievement, it's part of Hampstead, it would be an achievement uh, not to. And of course there will be streets <laughs> uh, where far more children end up in prison by the age of 19 or 20 and never get to university. And it, it isn't that we filter the children with predetermined futures into these places. Um, it's that... Place determines who you interact with. It determines who your friends can be. It determines who you will interact with at school. It determines wealth. You know, you buy a property in London at the right time in the 1970s or 80s, and you're suddenly thrown up into a different kind of section of society. Um, It's... And it's place and time, because... I was writing the book about now, or near to now. But of course, if you look back over the history uh, of this part of London, these places changed. Um, They were changed dramatically by the Second World War, by people fleeing the bombing, something we don't like to talk about very much. We like to pretend we were all hanging on in there in London. But, you know, those who could often got out. uh, And that changed the whole of the area around Notting Hill, which went from being very posh to being very poor, because people who lived in those houses, fled. EastEnders moved in, they squatted, because they were bombed out of the other part down in Bethnal Green. And then the EastEnders who moved out and squatted rented to people arriving from the Caribbean. And suddenly you have a West Indian area and you get a carnival. But but even in, the, even in um, despite all that flux, yes. what you present, and this oughtn't to come to, as a surprise... Yeah. To anyone, really, but reading it, it is still very starkly surprising, is how much of a gradient yes. of difference there is between oh, it's very st- It's very, very steep now. It was very steep in the past. It's very steep now. And the irony about the Notting Hills thing is that Notting Hill has now returned back to what it was in the 1880s, 1890s, when Charles Booth, who drew these beautiful maps of London, had parts of it coloured gold for being the servant-keeping class areas. It's now servant-keeping classes again. Uh, the gradients are especially sharp now. They were sharp in the 1880s and 1890s, and they're sharp again between very close by, 100, 200 metre areas. So they, so you're talking, so Dickensian London, they were sharp. Yes. When you say sharp now, you mean what, the last 20 years? Uh, yes, since the end of the 80s. The inequalities began to rise dramatically in the 80s, and so you had sharp differences then. But they were recent. They were only, they were recent so an area hadn't yet got a reputation. It takes a couple of decades to get a reputation. Uh, but by now, you know, we know what Holland Park means. Um, we we know living in a council block, but still largely council, comes with a stigma, which it didn't do when they were first built, often in the 70s or 80s in London, actually. They started the 80s before the building stopped. It's... It's income inequality is is a leading thing. The salaries of people within London diverged. The middle hollowed out. Very few people in London are actually getting an average London, uh, median average wage. 
there's a lot of people getting by on 18, 19, 21, 25,000 pounds a year. And then a lot who think they're only just getting by on 60, 70 or 80, uh, who talk about the struggle to live from where they live. And then a, a small number um, who are very well off. The, the, the classic being 3,000 bankers earning over a million euros a year in London. The 1%. They are well. They're the they're they're near to the kind of point one percent okay. or slightly. So okay. so to be a one percent in London, you need to have a family income of about two hundred thousand. Um, and, and the irony of that is, in London, I've met I've met people in London who are very well off, who have children who are just in the one percent, who they have helped out to buy a house because actually two hundred thousand pounds. If you want a three bed house in Fulham, yeah. it, it won't get you one. So. Yeah. So when you talk about inequality, this is probably a stupid question. It, can we define that? Do we do we know what we're talking about? Does everyone agree what we mean no. when we say inequality? Is it in, is it always income inequality, or are there other? No, no, there are, there are many many kinds. Um, there are differences between how we treat men, men and women. I mean, if you want to start off with a really fundamental inequality, a hundred years ago, women were subhuman; were not seen as human. Mm. So, so that's the biggest change, and still the greatest. There are inequalities in how people are treated by race and religion. London's not bad on that, actually. Um, quite progressive and on sexuality and all kinds of identities. But the inequality that matters more than anything else by orders of magnitude is social class as represented through income. It's the one that correlates with how long you're likely to live, with what's likely to happen, the amount of freedom you have to do things. Um, and there are two sides to, to income. One is it actually is it's what materially allows you to have choices, choices about what kind of housing you have, choices about whether you have a break or holiday. But secondly, that material one is really important. But secondly, it tells you psychologically how much you're valued. Mm-hmm. Um, it is our direct way. You know, we are apes. We evolved to live in small groups. And what really matters to us is uh, affirmation, whether, affirmation, whether yeah. people value us. And... I'm a high-income professor. Every day I wake up feeling I'm really important, I matter, I'm going to do these things, you know. And every month I get a payslip that tells me how much I'm valued. And most people get a pay well under the average. The majority of people are getting under mean average pay. And a lot of them, and increasingly the young are much more numerate, know this. Well, and you know it just because in much of London the rent is more than your wage. So you've got to find a sneaky way of surviving. So you're pointing there to material objective um, criteria, but also cultural ones that have an impact that are in the water. Yeah. <clears throat> but before we get to that, just it would if I got a bunch of politicians and academics in a room and went, is this society financially equal or unequal? Would they all agree? Oh, I think nowadays we've had progress. They, most, it, they would yeah. mostly agree it's unequal. Um, and it's amazing how often in the last year or so you hear the Conservatives using the word inequality as a bad thing. I mean, what they'll do is different, but, but it's quite a major achievement. Um, to recognise the truth. Of it. To recognise that. They wouldn't agree on the, on the trends. That The Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, Hammond at the moment, still at every budget, uh, quotes a figure saying that inequality has fallen uh, using a... a using a, an official statistic which ignores the best of 10% of people and the best of 
worst of 10%. Right. And he's right. If you ignore people like you and I, and you ignore people on the streets, then for those in those in the middle 80% of society, they have come together slightly, but they've all got relatively poorer. Because the top 10%, it really matters. The top one-tenth of people in Britain are now taking 40% of everything, leaving just 60% to the other 90%. That's essentially Eastern European standard living for 90% of people in, in Britain. Um, and those of us in the top 10%, we have an enormous inequality within our group. Um, and, and this is the biggest inequality of all of Europe. And well, you, in, in, in where? Where is? Oh, in the UK. UK. Yeah. UK has the biggest income inequality in all of Europe. Occasionally Latvia in some years beats us. Well, that, that, that is it. And you have to go back to about 1936, 1933 to find that level of inequality in this country last time. So if we follow, if we, if we, if, so taking that, taking that fact, and it is a fact, yeah. um, along that axis, that gradient, as a doctor, what's interesting is moving from stop to stop along the central line, life expectancy alters. Yes. As a, and when I say life expectancy, I'm someone who hesitates a bit about that as a measure of health, but as a basic parameter of health. It's a basic, it's an average out set of mortality rates. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, if you were to experience for your life living forward, what people on average are experiencing in areas around you, this is what you would get. Um, of course, for London, it's particularly ironic because hardly anybody starts off in one ward in London and lives their whole life in that ward. So it really is a kind of fictitious yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but it is based on the actual mortality rates of people of particular age groups and sexes in that area. It, it reflects the aggregate of what's happening. So why is life expectancy in Bethnal Green so different to Bond Street? It's when it begins from before birth. Um, so you try as, as a pregnant young woman with an average amount of money to eat healthily. It isn't actually possible. And this is with on the average. Whereas if you're from a better off a wealthy family, you can eat all the kind of food they tell you to eat and not eat others and take a rest and you don't have to work while your baby's growing in the womb. It's much easier not to smoke if you're better off. Um, you know, if everything is against you, if you have no control over your life, if you have to do free jobs and still you're having trouble getting yourself accommodated anywhere, a cigarette is a small, tiny bit of, of relief and the only effects of the smoking uh, on babies before they're born. And so we see these incredible differences in, in infant mortality rates which are mostly about dying around the first few days of, of life. And then once you're past then, uh, you can just look at the heights of children diverging. That's nutrition um, and other things that are associated with that. And then later on, opportunities. Well, mental health is really interesting because it doesn't have as sharp a social gradient. Uh, people in the top 10% get really worried and anxious and depressed also because this incredible inequality within the top 1%, top 10% and top 1%. Um, the most direct thing is our material effects. So having to work in an industry that ages you. Now, we have less of these nowadays, but traditional industry, uh, manufacturing, manual work, uh, is associated with, with your body actually aging faster as you wear it physically 
out. <laughs> the more complicated thing, and this is where Michael Marmot and the whole set of properly qualified, I'm a geographer, right? <laughs> the more complicated thing is the relationship between hormones and stress and status. Um, so although middle-class people like me might often, well, when I don't do anymore because I've read enough of these reports, say <laughs> I'm, I'm stressed, you know, oh, I've got too much work to do. Almost all the work I have to do is self-generated. I've decided to write this paper. I've decided to do this book. I'm in control. And you can measure, you can take people's blood out of their arm and you can measure particular hormones. Yeah. And you'll see that for me, it's not high. But for, you know, we may get interrupted by the man who will come to empty the bins. He won't come yet, he'll come a bit later. Every night he has to empty the bins in this building. He hasn't chosen to empty the bins. Nobody chooses to walk around a building and do that. He doesn't have a choice whether he does it when. He's got to do it then. And people in his situation have a higher degree of stress, and that stress has an effect on their heart. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're just, what you're describing there and is <clears throat> almost the... Um insidious and deep effects of am i right to call it poverty yes yeah it's it's poverty but there's, there's an effect of inequality on top of poverty but the most the most obvious effect of inequality is poverty because the people at the bottom you, you can see um you can almost you can see the mechanism working uh, my, my my father was a young doctor in oxford <clears throat> And he remembers the shock of starting work and suddenly realising that the men he was uh, tending to, who mostly worked on the production line in the car plant, suddenly realising that they were actually his age when he'd assumed by looking at them that they were 10 to 15 years older. Yes. Um, so, and it's, there was a complicated mixture of actual physical effects and some kind of mental effect of being forced to behave in a certain way, particularly when you know that other people don't have to. Yeah, so it steadily snowballs. Yeah, it, and it builds up. So you see the really big differences uh, in people's 50s, 60s and 70s. And yet, you know, alongside your description of a high-ranking politician having question a questionable index around inequality, the recent UN report... Yeah. indicting UN report yes. of the UK um, position on this has been denied on, you know... Oh, um, yes, because, well, because he, he was so um, direct about it. So we're happy to talk a bit about inequality and how we'd like it to reduce a bit, although Conservatives often talk about how they'd like, you know, couldn't we fool people into not knowing what their position was? And then they could be happy because they wouldn't know that other people had freedom. What fosters it? Greed? Um, uh, I mean, this is a naive question for a really complex issue, but you'd have thought about this obviously a yeah. lot. What Why does brings it get... a society to it? I mean, so bigger question, over mm. the course of human history, does it wax and wane or does it steadily... No, no, it waxes and wanes. Uh, as far as we've been able to measure it, and there are lots of ways to measure it, there's loads, of, it's a current fashion in archaeology to try to work out levels of inequality in the past, which you look, you look at the variation in the heights of skeletons. Did they all get to the same height? Did some people <laughs> short and longer? And you, you find different periods. When the Romans turned up, it was bad news. Um, skeletons get shorter for most people. It waxes and wanes. And we've got brilliant data in the last 100 years. My impression of what tends to happen is, if you don't keep an eye on it, and there are many ways of keeping an eye on inequality, it will gradually rise. Because some people have a predisposition to be more greedy and more obsessive and more 
possessive. They want things. Will rise inevitably, sorry, as a natural function of human behaviour. As a natural function of human behaviour, we've evolved to have a variety of greediness. A few of us are very greedy, most people aren't. And you need mechanisms. And and there probably is a beneficial side to that. So ancient humans probably were more likely to survive if there were a few greedy people who did store a load of grain, because then, hey, you've got some grain when you need it. We did all kinds of mechanisms to deal with it. I mean, the fundamental one is religions. Every major religion in the world, right back to the Circassians, yes. uh, has an edict about camels, eyes and needles, you know. Um, often the, the men, you know, the Buddha was a, was a sort of a rich family. Um, so, so you can see this etched in human history, this constant battle to control get people to behave in a way that brings it down it naturally rises up again um taking your eye off the ball is is part of it and part of what may have happened in britain but all countries have unique and different histories the british history of trying to explain why of the whole of europe have we become the most unequal we did have the richest most powerful people on the planet 1880 because we owned more of the planet than anybody's ever owned and Air quality rose rapidly with wars. Wars are a very good way of making people more, more equal because you have to fund them. There's only one set of people who've got the cash. Right. Yeah. Right? So, so we bring in incredible ca- uh, taxes for wars. But we, the, in hindsight, there was a residual group of people in Britain in the 60s and 70s whose grandparents had been immensely wealthy and they wanted it back. And they wanted their big houses in London back, which had been subdivided into flats. And they, this wasn't explicit. Just had a feeling that they should have more. And they end up with the big houses being turned back into big houses and with servants in the roof and servants in the attic again because we didn't keep an eye on it. If you told people in the 60s and 70s, this country, which then the UK was one of the most equal countries in Europe, we were vying with, with Sweden. Um, you know, we were almost Scandinavian. If you told people then, we will become the most unequal place, uh, some people will be paid two, three, four times more than others. Some people will live a life of drudgery. Others will have a problem because they don't have enough time for all their holidays. You know, two skiing trips, two summer holidays. Uh, you know, what do you do if you run out of time and you've got so much money? <laughs> but so here you're making, <clears throat> you know, the case for a corrective within society. Mm. One might make for the benefit of those, um, you know, at, at the wrong end of the gradient. But you've also articulated reasons why. You and others have articulated reasons why just having more unequal societies is bad for that society per se, in terms of mm. what it does to the fabric yes. of it. Could you say a bit about that? The, 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 the fabric falls apart. Um, and it partly falls apart because there's a self-reinforcing mechanism. As inequality rises, a small number of people get more and more at the top. They tend to think that's a good thing. Um and they tend to do things to try to maintain and control their position, which at the extremes means funding and taking over political parties, buying newspapers, and sending out a message that this is good. And if you too work hard enough, you too could be up there with them. But if you're up at the bottom, it's probably that either you or your parents just didn't try enough. Um, so it becomes self-reinforcing. And all the effort that would normally go into, let's make all the schools good. Let's make sure we have a health service, you know, that we would all like to use. A lot of that effort doesn't happen, which happens in more equal countries. So, you know, again, in London, the majority of hospitals in Kensington are private. 
Now, if your hospitals that you're using are private, why would you want the state to be better funded with something you're not going to use? Same with schools. Um, you know, our schools per pupil funding has, has reduced dramatically recently, state schools. Well, you know, if you're spending your own hard-earned money to send your child to St Paul's or Westminster or wherever else in London, you don't really want your child to be competing with children for that place you want for them at a university you know, in, in, your, in your heart of hearts. So a less educated, less well-society yeah. that's oddly at war with itself, or at least in some in, in conflict. Oddly at war. The easiest way to think is it's very hard to see your own society as not normal. Because for you, it's normal. The easy way to understand this is just look at the United States of America. Yes. Look at what Donald Trump says, and it's not hard to see how ridiculous that is. Um, And then look at what people in one of the more equal societies, just take Germany, Mm. what what they say about, you know, they keep their house prices down to half of ours. They work very hard to make sure that they don't get house price inflation in Germany. By what, breaking the cycle of competitiveness almost and... and yeah, and and they, they treat their society, it's not a utopia, but they have more children going to universities than we do. Yeah, uh, They have universities in effect for very skilled apprenticeships that are going to do. Jobs that we look down on are paid highly. Jobs that we look up on are paid much less. If I was a university professor in Germany, I'd be on much less money than I am in England. I just wonder, I mean, I suppose hearing this, not a, not a year or, you know, Certainly not a decade goes by without myself and my contemporaries patting ourselves on the back about the progresses of medicine, you know, mm. post-enlightenment progresses of technology, which of course are real. Mm. I, I accept that and they have some impressive yeah. um, results. Are they real and they're magical for particular individuals when you see something happen that that wasn't possible before? But, but the problem is, in the last few years, to be precise, since 2014... Our life expectancy for both men and women in this country has actually fallen. And this is almost unprecedented. Uh, And our reaction to it, the reaction, first of all, of the kind of official statistics bodies is, well, A, to worry that they're releasing the data because they say, oh, it might be a bit random. Yes. It turns out that the confidence limits are days on life expectancy for a nation of 63, 64 million people. So there's no randomness. It's, It's really happened. Um. And then the the, the terrible thing you get in a country that's become more unequal is, well, maybe in a time of austerity and it's not a bad thing that somebody old who are a burden are dying a bit earlier. Can you imagine people in a normal European country thinking it's a good thing that our parents are dying a bit earlier? And, you know, we're on the edge of what people say and don't say. Well, I guess that's almost my worry, is that when patting ourselves on the back on a, for, for progress, it doesn't strike me as a particularly impressive record of progress or what no. I, how I would like to see a civilised society. No. Well, we have got, you know, we've got infant mortality down to 3.5 uh, babies dying per thousand born. And that's dramatic. We know when I was born, it was about 11. However, a year ago, it was 3.4. And a year before then, it was 3.3. So infant mortality is rising. One comment I've had from a, a leading politician is, well, that's only one baby in 10,000, Danny. You know, look at the progress over the last 100 years. Aren't you complaining too much? And um, yes, it is only one one baby and one yeah, set of griefing parents per 10,000, but it's the tip of an iceberg of much else that's going on. Yes. And it is not happening 
anywhere else in Europe as far as we can see, or even Scotland. Scotland now, you've got a better chance of surviving to H1 in Scotland if you're born there than England. That's new. Um, but the, not seeing this as a warning, or the fact our neonatal mortality, we used to be the best in the world in the 1960s because we had the first baby incubators. Um, and then by 1990, we were seventh in Europe, and by 2015, we were about 19th. And currently, we're on track... I don't know, within eight, ten years, we'll be on the par with Romania. Now, it's really good for Romania that things are getting so much better in Romania. But how on earth can Britain, which is so into pride, you know, look, we got the seven second most medals at the Olympics. How can we have this blind spot? Do we have almost, we have the worst child health in all of Western Europe and it's getting worse. What, what on earth is it about us that makes us so brutal that we just don't care about that? Just comment for me, if you would, on two other consequences. You've, you've, you've talked, I've heard you talk about the effects on, for instance, climate change, or at least on um, mm. environmentally sustainable yeah. um, landscapes. But also, you, I heard something really, I mean, you've written about this, of course, and I, I apologise, I've not read it, mm. but you're drawing the straight line between the disenchantment that gets heightened in more unequal societies and outcomes like Brexit, for instance. Yeah. You say a bit about those two things. Well, on the on the climate change, I mean, this is partly why that the, I mean, the climate change deniers have almost given up because the last ten years have been so hot. Uh, but one of the reasons why people put so much effort into trying to deny that climate change is happening is the finding that in more and more unequal countries like the USA, the average person consumes much, much more, twice as much than the average person in a more equal country like Japan. And there are good reasons for this. It's partly about, um, well, you're more encouraged to consume more. There's four times as much advertising in the USA than in Japan, twice as much as done in Europe. People buy clothes that they only wear a few times and then throw away. People eat more, they comfort eat, and uh, throw away and waste more more food. Um, Just more gluttonous. More gluttonous. People drive more because you don't plan to have a decent public transport system in an unequal country because it's all about you, yourself, and your big car. Yes. Um, so there's loads and loads of growing evidence that the fastest way to reduce carbon pollution is greater equality. And people who hate the idea of greater equality then hate that and think it's a great conspiracy. Um, and then you're... you're Remind me of your second question. I was talking about Brexit and oh, Brexit yeah. Oh, well, there's a lovely disenchantment relationship if you look at levels of inequality and uh, turnout. So the USA, 50% turnout. In case that some people are not allowed to vote because they make it illegal for them to vote if they've been a prisoner. Any place in Europe that is us, of course. You can't vote if you're in prison, which is illegal under European law, but we do it because we're almost American. Um, so... The Financial Times, when Trump was elected, uh, tried to work out the best predictors by county, there were about 3,000 counties in the US, of the swing towards Trump. And they found it was health. Areas where health had deteriorated, not necessarily the people for whom it deteriorated, it was white middle-class men who liked Trump, but white middle-class men in places that were going downhill. And in the US, downhill means really fast downhill. You know, it's, it's much, much worse health than we've got. So inequality was related to the Trump victory. In the UK, well, there's 28 countries in the EU. Is it a coincidence that the most unequal is the first to try to leave? And that's, that's the first one to look at. 
But when we look at the places that most voted leave, they are not, in terms of numbers, actually those poor places in the north, although they matter. The the majority, 52% of leavers, uh, lived in the south of England with a minority of the electorate, but they lived in poorer parts of the south. And they saw people in London living it up, and they saw people in Oxford and Cambridge living it up, or in the middle of Bristol living it up. And there's actually a hell of a lot of struggling uh, in the middle. 59% of the Leave voters were middle class, but they weren't well-off middle-class people, and they could see no future for their grandchildren. They're mainly old. Um, and so, you yes. know, and they wanted to take back control. Yeah. And take back control means all kinds of things. But part of control is you want your children and grandchildren to be able to settle down, have stable families, have a future, and not live an increasingly precarious life. Tell me, you, you talk about things waxing and waning in, in our last couple of minutes. What, what would good look like? And is good inevitable? <laughs> uh, I, well, I'm an optimist. I mean, in the long term, well, I, I, either good is, is inevitable or annihilation, and annihilation is pretty rare. So we do get good. The only question is whether we get good slowly or more quickly. Yeah. That, that's the choice. Um, the bad news is that good doesn't look good. So the last peak of inequality in this country was around about 1913. Half of the great gain to becoming the most equal we'd ever been by 1976, half of that gain occurred before 1939. Nobody noticed in the 20s or in the 30s that inequality was falling. Nobody felt that things were getting better. Uh, and there's a terrible, other than a rapid, rapid revolutionary change, and that comes from losing a war where the invading force simply gets rid of your elite. And of course, you read about your history. When you lose a war, you actually, you write a truthful history about yourself. And those at the top are no longer seen as wonderful. It's 20 years of struggle and you won't notice it. And annoying people like me will be writing things saying, actually, it's getting slightly better. Mm. Um, but living with it, I suppose we do this, I can't, I'll do a medical analogy. You know, imagine that something goes sort of terribly wrong with your lung and it's really pretty, pretty bad. And then some doctors manage to kind of fix it a bit so that it, it gets slightly better. You're still wheezing. You know, it doesn't feel, it's not, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and and the kind of the twenty year thing is, you know, twenty years later, your lungs okay, but of course the rest, you know, something else falls apart. <laughs> um, but it's, I'm afraid, it's a hard slog. It's a hard, hard slog. Um, how are you, how are you an optimist? Why aren't you furious? Seeing the figures that you're seeing, studying it in the way that you are so forensically, why aren't you furious? Or maybe you are. I, I get. I get used to it. I got furious a few weeks. When you, you mentioned earlier the UN Special Rapporteur yes. and the report, he gave an example in Oxford. An example in Oxford was two primary schools, Orchard Meadow, Meadow and the Pegasus School, where the schools can no longer give the children the meals that they're obliged by law to provide them for free because the children are too poor to actually, for their families to afford food. So the dinner, mainly dinner ladies, it's women mainly, were going to food banks in Oxford to beg for the food to feed the children at school. Um, and, you know, you get angry, particularly as this town is full of colleges throwing away food for students who won't eat it. But you get used to it. I got angry the first time I discovered that children from the school I went to are more likely to die homeless 
uh, than to get into his university. But you get used to it. And you can get yourself really depressed, you know, if you go if you go through the statistics of the most unequal country in Europe, and you talk about our prisons and everything else that we do, um, then it can um, it can make you furious. But you can also see things getting better, and you can see how it would be possible for them to get so much better um, so quickly. So I'm. I'm optimistic also because I can track all the places that have become more equal recently. And a majority of European countries have seen rising equality in the last five years. Danny Orling, all I can say is thank the Lord for you um, and thank you for your time thank today. You. Thank you, Danny. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy it.